Hello, my name is Taylor Marsh, and welcome to Sacred to Psychic. I'm a thriller writer. My women characters live where there are few safe spaces. I delve in the hidden spaces in the mind, surfing dark shadows. These are themes of disruption, especially when sacred outreach taps psychic portals. This is my playground. Here we go. So I talked about lean in. Now let's do girl boss. From an article in The Atlantic this week by Amanda Mull. Here we go. When the term girl boss was foisted on the public in 2014, the United States was already well on its way to the series of cascading disasters that have shaped 2020, even if they had not yet come fully into focus. That year, an Ebola outbreak briefly seemed as though it might take root in America. Conspiracy theories about the safety of vaccines became popular enough to seed a measles flare-up in New York City. Donald Trump hinted at running at a future run for president. Michael Brown, a black teenager, was shot and killed by a white police officer in Ferguson, Missouri. Many people sensed a need for change, but not everyone agreed on how much. In her pop feminist business memoir, Girl Boss, the entrepreneur Sophia Amoruso, who had parlayed an eBay account into the fast fashion mini empire Nasty Gal, proposed a convenient incrementalism. Instead of dismantling the power men had long wielded in America, career women could simply take it for themselves at the office. Like Sheryl Sandberg's self-help hit Lean In before it, Girl Boss argued that the professional success of ambitious young women was a two-birds-one-stone type of activism. Their pursuit of power could be branded as a righteous quest for equality, and the success of female executives and entrepreneurs would lift up the women below them. Amoruso's vision of female corporate supremacy was celebrated and emulated by other aspiring entrepreneurs for years. Girl Boss sold more than half a million copies, and Amoruso launched a media company of the same name, complete with networking conferences, branding, merchandise, and a Netflix series. Soon, the Girl Boss ideal became a template for marketing and writing about powerful women in virtually every industry. For a time, female wealth was treated as feel-good news unto itself. The reality of girl bossing, however, was always a little bit messier. Amoruso's career at Nasty Gal was dogged by constant turnover, accusations of discrimination and abusive management, and the company's eventual bankruptcy. The company denied the allegations. Uh, Amoruso declined a request uh, for comment, etc. Going on. Over time, accusations of sinister labor practices among prominent businesswomen who fit the girl boss template became more common. The confident, hard-working, camera-ready young woman of a publicist's dreams apparently had an evil twin, a woman pedigreed and usually white who was not only as accomplished as her male counterparts, but just as cruel and demanding, too. Since Girl Boss's publication, the country's deep, long-standing divisions along race and class lines have led many people who might have been amenable to Amoruso's remunerative quasi-feminist liberation fantasy to to become more skeptical, not just of their male bosses, but of power itself and anyone who might possess it. 
Now, amid the chaos of 2020, people sense a need for change deeper than self-help career books could hope to offer. In recent months, a series of stylish young female entrepreneurs have left or been forced out of the companies they founded. This group includes Amaruso herself. Earlier this week, she and most of her staff left Girl Boss Media, citing financial losses due to the pandemic. Even before Amaruso's announcement, the end of the Girl Boss was nigh. When a country is grappling with mass death, racist state violence, and the unemployment and potential homelessness of millions of people, it becomes inescapably clear that when women center their worldview around their own office hustle, it just recreates the power structures built by men, but when women conveniently, but with women conveniently on top. In the void left after the end of the corporate feminist vision of the future, this reckoning opens space to imagine success that doesn't involve acing performance reviews or getting the most out of your interns. For the girl boss theory of the universe to cohere, women have to be inherently good and moral creatures, or at least inherently better than men. For some, for some young women who find inspiration in the concept, that assertion might simply feel like a vote of confidence. But the presumption of that difference between women and men is also what made girl bosses marketable to those who might patronize their businesses. If these women could succeed while upholding feminist values and treating their employees humanely, then maybe the patriarchy was just a choice that savvy consumers could shop their way around. Maybe people could vote for equality by buying a particular set of luggage or joining a particular co-working space. For white, affluent, millennial women who desired to become girl bosses themselves, their particular ambition was tailor-made for the moment in which the concept flourished. Girl bossing provided a tenuous bridge in the mid-2010s on the one end, the reality of social upheaval and stagnant wage growth that, growth that met young people in the job market after the Great Recession, on the other, the long-gone world of predictable corporate success that these women had been promised by the professional progress of their mothers. Many of these women rushed over that bridge, hopeful that the future they had promised, had been promised, was on the other side. That same basis in self-interest, however, makes girl bosses particularly unsuited to a moment that has stopped prioritizing their personal achievement and is instead focused on the national reckoning over racial justice, quote. The white girl boss, and so many of them were white, sat at the unique intersection of oppression and privilege. She saw gender in inequity everywhere she looked. This gave her something to wage war against, Leistein wrote recently in an essay on the era's end. Racial inequity was never really on her radar. That was someone else's problem to solve. Women are still people, which means that we can respond in similar ways to the incentives and privileges of power that sometimes make male bosses tyrants or harassers or wealth hoarders. 
Slotting mostly white women into the power structures, usually occupied by men, does not de facto change workplaces, let alone the world, for the better if the structures themselves go untouched. This is all too apparent in the ways that the social upheaval of recent years, and especially the past few months, has shaken out in companies run by some of the country's most ballyhooed female entrepreneurs. Steph Corey, the CEO of the luggage brand Away, has been locked in a power struggle at the company over her allegedly tyrannical management style since late 2019. She resigned and issued a lengthy apology, but then called the reporting quote-unquote inaccurate and announced a few weeks later that she would stay on at the company. Audrey Gelman, a founder of the women-only co-working space Wing, itself an incubator of sorts for girl bosses, resigned from her role as CEO earlier this month amid a, an uproar over low pay and poor treatment of the people, largely women of color, tasked with the day-to-day -day operation of the company's membership club. Gelman declined to comment on the record, and in the interest of full disclosure, I hosted an event at Wing location last year. Uh, Mickey Agrawal, uh, the founder of Think Underwear, was forced to leave the company in 2017 after former employees accused her of sexual harassment. She, de uh, she denied the al allegations. As the stories have surfaced, they've met an audience less willing than any in recent memory to excuse the thoughtlessness, uh, the thoughtless or harmful behavior of those in power, no matter the gender, or the perpetrators. In the past, when an Anna Wintour or Ariana Huffington climbed on the top, their widely reported maltreatment of their employees was waved away for decades as an unfortunate but necessary byproduct of executive genius, an indicator of just how much women had to harden themselves to excel in a man's world. Winter recently apologized to her staff in an, in, in an internal email. In the past, Huffington has declined to comment on complaints about her management style. The current cultural pushback against girl bosses isn't a desire to be, be done pursuing equality or to stop trying to eliminate workplace disparities. This mode of empowerment has briefly was briefly successful exactly because people had become more aware of and uncomfortable with the power, the way power functions in America. During Donald Trump's presidency, that feeling was only intensified among exactly the group girl boss was supposed to inspire, young progressive women with a will toward action. The push to move beyond the girl boss in a, is an acknowledgment that a slight expansion of college-educated women's access to venture capital or mentoring opportunities was never a meaningful change to begin with or an avenue via which meaningful change might be achieved. Being belittled, harassed, or denied fair pay by a woman doesn't make the experience instructive instead of traumatic. With all the attention given to the alleged misdeeds by female executives and entrepreneurs, it would be easy to feel like they are being disproportionately targeted for things that men in their positions have always done or that people take a bit too much glee in their downfall. Certainly, gender discrimination at every rung of the corporate ladder is still rampant, but this time there's evidence that the shift is larger. It's not just girl bosses who are being called to account. CrossFit CEO Greg Glassman, Bon Appetit Editor-in-Chief Adam Ra Rappaport, 
uh, and the New York Times opinion editor James Bennett, a former editor of The Atlantic, were all forced out of their jobs this month by those below them. For most people, an equal opportunity reckoning for those in power offers a, offers a glimmer of hope. America's workplace problems don't begin and end with the identities of those atop corporate hierarchies. They're embedded in the hierarchies themselves. Making women the new men within corporations was never going to be enough to address systematic, systematic racism and sexism, the erosion of labor rights, or the accumulation of wealth in just a few of the country's millions of hands, the broad abuses of power that afflict the daily lives of most people. Disasters disrupt the future people expected to have, but they also give those people the space to imagine a better one. Those who seek power most zealously might not be the leaders people need. As Americans survey a nation torn apart and make plans to stitch it back together, admitting this at the very least can be an easy first step in the much harder process of doing the things that actually work. Structural change is a thing that happens to structures, not within them. So that was, uh, that was an article in The Atlantic by Amanda Mull. thought it was very interesting. I think it ties into what I'm talking about in meditation and finding your inner mystic and your inner creative zone where you have your own dialogue with whatever you might be able to draw into your sphere when you're meditating. It is so different. It puts you on a different plane. It allows you to imagine your life differently. You may start dreaming about the job you always wanted to have. And you are your own unique person. I discovered that long ago as an artist when I was a little kid. And I've, I've come to the conclusion that with the evolution of uh, human history, we are all going to be challenged. And we're also have to, we're going to have to start really asking ourselves, what do I want? What, what is it that you really want? And I say this all the time, it's what, it's the thread of every coaching session I've ever had with, a, with someone when they're frustrated and they don't know which way to turn and they've got all these interests and they don't want, what do you want? And you get to pick one thing first. What is the one thing you want? Now, it may take you several tries to find that one thing, but you've got to find that. And within that, there's going to be unique things that you bring to that thing you want to do to get what you want. And finding your own, re your own unique voice in whatever you do, whether it's sewing or business or real estate or sales, you have to be so grounded in that, and it has to be authentic. And so I decided to go deeper in meditation to really try to think of, of how to do this. And I remember when I started Maybe Fatal, which was published January 22nd, 2019. When I started working on the book, it was really the first time I started getting uh, specific creative downloads, ideas, uh, that came from an, a place that I could, I could trust. 
the downloads that I used to, uh, that I've gotten throughout my life, whether you want to call them instinctual, you want to call them psychic, you want to talk about tapping the law of attraction, any way you want to talk about it, I didn't have it focused on the larger picture of religion and life and the law of attraction and these bigger things. I was very interested in them, but I just didn't want to get into all the different things that I was interested in because I felt too naked. And that really was a revelation after I, I finally realized that the, the person I created in the first 25 years of my life was a defensive uh, reaction. And this, the person I am really at a gut level is this writer, philosopher, telling stories, figuring out this uh, cha-cha-cha that goes on beyond the veil. And it was something that I just had to finally accept that I was supposed to discover, and I didn't know I would discover, but I was supposed to investigate. I was supposed to take the time to investigate. And I think hitting so many walls creatively opened, m opened me up to being able to take this risk and talk about things like what happens beyond the veil and also talk about, like I did last episode, that as exciting as genealogy is, it is the past. And what is very present is who you are and, this, and the cosmic tattoo, which is your birth chart. Uh, these kinds of things bring out, oh, she's gone off the deep end. Did you hear what she's talking about? She's talking about astrology. Well, I am talking about getting creative and thinking about your life and your ideas and why you're here in a larger paradigm. I'm talking about using a map that gets into mythical uh, constellations and these constellations mean different things and have a, a larger story. I'm talking about this. I'm not talking about getting up on a certain day reading in whatever magazine what your horoscope for the day is and being sunny or down compared to whatever they say. The only thing that matters is your interpretation of what your birth chart says about you and how that uh, lines up with what you do in your daily life. It's your interpretation. You can go to a million psychics. You can go to 10 million astrologers and you can go to a different tarot card reader every day. It's not going to tell you as much as if you decide to walk into the mystic arts, the, al the alchemy that surrounds them, and the mysticism involved in getting beyond prayer into a meditative state where you are quiet and safe and you hear a question you want to ask, and you ask it. You may not get answers for days. You may get something else entirely. But the opening of your heart center, your, your, your mind, your every part of your body to answers beyond the architecture of traditional religion, whatever your faith is, 
opens up pathways, opens up to passages where information can be exchanged in your mind and in the quiet, answers can come up. And I started to do this deep meditation after I started the book, and I, I, you know, I had my days. I, had, I was writing, and I was doing, and I was cutting as I went and going on and on. And I finally just got to a place, and I reread a, read a section. This is as best as I can recall. Uh, I reread a section, and I said, no, no. That's fine. It's writing. It's grammar. It's got all the things, but that's not the way you hear it. You hear it differently than you're putting it on the page. And I went back into the meditation, and then I just got up, and I went to, the, went to my computer, and I started writing just as I heard it in my head. And I will be honest, the way I hear things in my head is not the way literature is written. I remember one of the one of the reviews I knew I was going to get on Maybe Fatal is, oh my God, the sentence structure, the sentence structure. What is going on? I don't understand it. I knew I was going to get that because the way I heard this book was in da 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 I heard it in beats, music, and the way characters say their lines are a big part of my work. I was an actor for, for over 20 years. I took acting for years and years and years in Los Angeles. I took it obviously in college. I have a BFA. <laughs> I've, I've done this. I've done commercials. I've done straight plays. I've done a lot of different things. And I was, I was so sure of what I was doing and where I was going with this. I just said, this is the way I'm going to do it. I'm just going to, I'm going to keep going on this. And after all the research and all the different thrillers that the women had written and the different bouncing around with dates in, in the most popular ones, I really wanted to do the same thing. And I'd been wanting to do a uh, backstory in the middle of a story that's still going for a long time. For since I started this, and so I just kept going with it, and the back and forth with the timing drove me nuts, uh, trying to get everything worked out. But this is a very different type of book. Uh, Maybe Fatal is was was a breakthrough for me. It'll be a breakthrough forever. I think every author needs it and needs to needs what they call a breakthrough, a breakout everything you can say about it. Uh, one of the places that really helped me uh, do this in advertising was uh, New in Books. And I'm very grateful for them. Uh, they, they put it as one of the buzziest books of February in 2019. It is a, uh, it rocketed. I had to do a lot of other advertising. There was timing involved and it was I really did the research on writing the energies, as I call it, and I was able to get um, to 2,589 in paid in Kindle store, and it was down under 3,000 for quite a few days, for over a week, and to me, that is my own little private bestseller, 
because I was number six in uh, the category supernatural psychic. Uh, it goes, there's a lot of other things before that you authors know. But it was mystery, thriller, suspense, thrillers and suspense, supernatural and psychic. I was number 15 in paranormal psychic. And then I was number 61 in mystery, thriller, suspense, crime fiction, serial killers. And this was uh, when it, um, around the time it debuted, that, that first month. And I was very proud of this. And it is still, I, I hear from people all the time who just loved it. And I just want to drop into this book just because it's summer and everybody, everybody needs to get a book for summer, and this is this will be fun for you to consider on your summer reading. Here we go. It's um, we're at about a page 103 in this. It's um, 408 pages, and the reason it's 408 pages is because of the way it had to be laid out so I could get. And this chapter is Dr. Kate Winters, present day Thursday night. Each chapter has, whether it's present day or it's not, what day of the week it is and what character is primarily involved. <laughs> I won't do that in another book, I don't think. <laughs> not unless I have two assistants <laughs> to help me. Oh, my gosh, it was so much. Anyway, so here we go. The sound of a bark, then a shriek of a fox carried across the night air. Kate rolled down the window, tapped into the pulse of her surroundings, sat in her car to think through what came next. The hardest element of her work depended on the opposite of effort. She had to relax her mind, let it come to her. To traverse a vacated crime scene and bend reality to reveal secrets meant blank space, a canvas to welcome in another world, intent and motive to fill in holes. The repetitive sounds of wildlife became a cacophony. The crime scene won't analyze itself. She got out of the car, hoisted her bag onto her shoulder, and walked toward the house. The code to the police lockbox hadn't changed. Nobody had, nobody had been inside since the police left early Saturday. The first step onto the porch set her instincts on alert, a normal reaction for anyone who visited Riverbend Road. You'd never guess what has happened here. Kate set, Kate set her bag on a nearby table, opened a flap, took out her night vision binoc binoculars, peered through the binoculars from the front porch. Nothing moved, nothing discovered. The goggles had become a wrench for her subconscious. Tools turned into a security blanket, the result of, the result of a tough job done in difficult spaces. Turned to go inside, a high-powered flashlight guided her way. The picture window across the room appeared like a portal. The script to whatever played out here reached beyond this space. Someone ripped the necklace off, chased her, grabbed her. The necklace and the woman who wore it preoccupied Kate. A walk toward the back room on the main floor where the young men had taken Amanda. It was Stoney's story. He had held back a lot, saying she'd awakened here in this room. Makes little sense. The most powerful tool in her arsenal balked. Her gut didn't buy it. Stoney's BS again. 
His interior world was a minefield. Being here clear of obstacles, the night revealed secrets that hid in plain sight in the light. A look outside from this room made her calmer until she heard a strange noise. The walls dispersed the sound. Did it come from the yard? Her night vision intensified through the binoculars. Surety regained, nothing visible, no movement. So what had caused the sound? There was no wind. Kate closed her eyes. The next sound came from inside, muffled. Seconds later, nothing. Now I'm hearing things. What's the deal? It didn't begin for Kate until she was alone. Absorption of the crime scene, all aspects, demanded no distractions. Where her imagination encouraged her to dissect the results of a collision of souls, humans at their worst, trails of energy left behind to diagnose, a story to unravel. The crime scene techs left the room as they'd found it. They'd collected enough DNA to keep the lab busy for weeks. Science worked by method, not time. Force had not been an issue with Amanda. The consensual sex with multiple men happened through choice. Inhibitions were minimal with drugs and alcohol. She has a score to settle with her father. Heroin arrest, multiple partner sex, Amanda out of control, narcissism on steroids. A lot more to this. Her subconscious mind plowed through obvious trails of previous drama with Stoney. None fit, to the none fit the current scene. Dr. Kate Winter was immune to petty fights because of experience that would have wrecked ordinary mortals. The picture window provided a lens in the blackness. She stared out while her mind did a deep dive. Fear spikes at night. We take risks under the shield of the moon. It exposes our emotional insecurities and personal fault lines. Open w opens wounds we don't admit exist to anyone. Our need to annihilate what haunts us taps on our weaknesses, so we act. It makes our vices appear as a tonic and an escape. It doesn't have to last long. We don't expect relief. We settle for a respite. Dull the emotions. Drown manic impulses. A moonlit night speaks in at our subconscious and the unclaimed parts of our con unconscious, where our weaknesses wait to betray us. Light diffuses the time bombs we bury while the night infuses our mind's darkest thoughts like a detonation charge. Our actions repulse us when we react. Driven by inner battles, we cannot help ourselves. It was the same every time. When the earth shakes, the seabed roils until the organic reaction fulfills itself in a wave or a tsunami. Same with our subconscious. Our ugliest thoughts are strongest in the deep darkness. Extreme choices can seduce us. Our subconscious calls from the depths for us to remember. When we refuse to comply, our excuse is to self-medicate. Memory is the first step. It reminds us of our torment. We torture ourselves to find our footing without it. When we can't, we run. Next chapter. Present day, Thursday night. Dr. Kate Winter. 
It's what happened to Lily. The young woman is alive, no doubt about it. The crowd was chill. She ran, but who chased her? Recorder on, Kate continued. She got close enough to Lily to break her necklace chain, a struggle. To understand terror is to live with it, what it means to cause it, to analyze it. To analyze the aftermath is to be inside the perpetrator's mind. To be where it happened helps to absorb it. The rancid emissions of a human amid death throes, the noxious expulsion of body waste, the rotting flesh amid crews. The putrid combination comes with Dr. Kate Winner to every crime scene, the, the fetid smell of dead bodies. It doesn't have to make sense. Variables, however, must fit like a puzzle. A flashlight lit walk through the house room by room delivered, delivered familiarity. Walk through the past before you excavate the present. Into the kitchen where the double murder had happened and how the myth of this house began. Hesitation. Kate's steps slow. Jolted by forensic pictures, her steps were heavier. An accumulation of mutilated corpses bathed her brain. Red walls, and it goes on. Across from the hallway bathroom was another room. A small but impressive built-in library. A contemplative room in contrast to other parts of the house. The, in the extreme shift in energy made Kate stop. Book after book on the Civil War. Foreign policy and history books packed one sh wall of shelves. Pages of war stories. Fragile peace in how the world became what it is today. Fiction commandeered another wall. The last wall of shelves held books by mystics and New Age thinkers. Spiritual books, philosophy, and writings meant to challenge people. Weird. An aroma different from other parts of the house. A bothersome sign. It wasn't her imagination. Humans leave traces of themselves behind. Chaos screamed from several rooms in this house. Not here. A cozy hideaway. One room safe from the mayhem. Wait. One wall was a wall-papered facade. The closer Kate got to this wall, the stronger the energy. She stopped. Far enough now. A signal. She explained it to people as her gut. Then a chill. Her reaction answered the questions, explained the noises. She wasn't alone. Present day, Friday, 12.30 a.m., Dr. Kate Winter. Kate walked out of the library. The fake book wall opened with ease. She squeezed out of the hidden passage. Back in the main room, Kate's cell phone rang. She ignored it, rummaged around in her bag. The man opened the library door to slip out. Silent footsteps, agile moves put him in at the entrance to the main room. He waited, watched. An unobstructed view to the woman who'd interrupted his search. The wind kicked up. Rooftop sounds, the loud clang. I know you're there, Kate said. Binoculars back in place, no response, reached deep inside her bag. The cold metal intensified her alertness, pulled out her gun, held it close to her side, her back to the man in the hallway. The man saw the front door, thought about a fast flick. The woman's voice was serious. 
There was no hint of nerves from her. He rejected the idea. No clean options. You can stand there all night, but I won't leave. Speak up, a quick answer. I'll hold. He didn't move. This is Dr. Winter. I need a squad car out here on Riverbend Road. He listened, hung up. Listen, pal. I'll have two shots in you before you cross the floor. Maybe more. It's fascinating, but police often don't recall how many times they pull the trigger when they confront a criminal. Time for you to decide. No need for the gun. Thanks for the advice. Time for introductions. You first. The flashlight lit the way for him. He stepped into the room, his hands in front of him. Easy, I'm unarmed. Take a seat by the couch. Listen, I... Not interested. Who are you? Flint Grant. My sister came to the party and ended up in the hospital. Let me see your ID. You first. What's her name? Janet. Get comfortable. Kate Watson dialed a number. Hey, it's Kate. I need the names of two y- of the two young women hospitalized, hospitalized last Friday. The man moved to the end of the couch, checked his watch, scratched his face, cracked his neck, changed his position again. <laughs> his mannerism screamed withdrawal. Amphetamine? He can't sit still. Still? Oh, yeah. Thanks. I appreciate it. He's caught and a liar, and he came here unarmed. Kate tucked her 9mm Glock pistol into the back of her pants. I, I assumed you were police. What kind of doctor are you? The kind that doesn't patch up bodies after a gunshot wound. I'm an analyst with an organization that works with authorities. Tells me nothing. You're quick. Two kind officers will be here in less than 10 minutes. What were you doing in the library? He didn't speak. Look, I understand you're upset about your sister, but you will not find answers here. Let authorities handle it. Right. It just happened. Be patient. This is... No, it's a travesty. What are you doing here? Nothing. If he bolts, I can't shoot him, so why is he still here? He is desperate to find something in this house. This is out of character for Janet. She's not a party girl, he said. How do I know? What? You're her brother. Does she tell you everything? Intimate details about her life? No, but it's not like her. Kate walked closer, still on guard. He developed a tick, kept tilting his head to one side, a permanent kink in his neck. Oxy and cocaine is one type of high. Add fentanyl. And it's Russian roulette. It happens too often. Your sister was lucky. He ran his hands through his hair. Exhale. If this guy could climb walls, he'd be on the ceiling. Janet almost died. He grumbled, looked down. She saw him check for exit. I didn't know about the fentanyl, he said. Kate took another step forward. He stood and walked over to look out the picture window. Why did you hide in the library? What were you looking for? He walked closer to him as as she spoke. He didn't respond. Kate was less than five feet away. They will pay for this. I'm not their fall guy. What did you say? When he turned around, his face was flushed. His eyes darted around. She was too close. Alcohol wafted from him. 
mixed with the flop sweat she'd smelled in the library, the unmistakable odor of punk. Her gut sent an alert, simple message, back off. He took a step forward. You're not Janet's brother. No, I'm not. A slit of a smile crept across his face, but he wasn't happy. He lunged in Kate's direction, but instead of attacking her, he fled out the front door. Now, that's, that's part of the book. Uh, there's lots of different ups and downs and obviously surprises. It's, uh, it's a thriller, after all. There is lo- much mysticism in it. And it was because I was really trying to give people a picture, give people a sensation of what it's like to be hit with these things, to be hit with information, to be hit with uh, a message that you don't understand, to have, to have a job, to have a life where everything you do is based on your instinct. And it's based on how you feel about something that you get a drive. But then you have to, d- you have to decide when you're an artist and you don't have anyone saying y- you get up tomorrow at 8 and you need to be at this place. You have, to d- you have to make your own architecture. And that's where so many creative people uh, go wrong. You will have more failures in your artistic life than you will creative successes. Okay, what's a creative set success? One thing is a creative success, and that's monetary manifestation. Now, that's not the only thing for creative success. Uh, Sharknado may have made a lot of money, or maybe some of these uh, sensational movies make a lot of money. Slasher films and different things make a lot of money. These big blockbuster crazy films make a lot of money. But there are other things that you want in your artistry, and it'll change throughout your career. I have insight and instinct into human behavior based on a lifetime of using my gifts and never telling anyone about them. It is how I have discovered things about myself and my artistry. It is, it is what eventually led me to fiction. Now, I want to stress that the first 47 years of my life, though I wasn't wealthy and I had a lot of financial trouble as an artist, as a female artist, single female artist, I, I always was able to, to keep a roof over my head and keep going forward in my artistry. And the two are much... Not, don't always go together. You can have a a wonderful book that you've written, and you get you get reviews on people like it, but you it's not a subject that sells. Politics is really hard to sell, especially thrillers. If you you d- there aren't a lot of women who write political thrillers, and there's a reason for that. Uh, they don't m- make any money. It's really interesting that the big thrillers are the are males. And there are people who th- throw out books m- month after month. You have very succe- successful writers like James Patterson that writes political thrillers. Uh, Tom Clancy was very successful before um, he uh, died. 
and they still they're they continue on in his name because he he created such iconic characters but it is it is a very interesting thing to try and express your own gifts and take it to the point of fiction where someone is so is so gifted and maybe a little bit rocky in her own life but she's so gifted that she channels another entity now i did this stuff before i found uh medium, the Hollywood medium, and Teresa Caputo, and Abraham Hicks. I, the people I studied or, or read after my, my religious faith were people like Deepak Chopra. There's all the people that Oprah Winfrey have, has interviewed, all the different series she has on this, you know, the faith and the, the Soul Sunday. There's all these different, and of course, Wayne Dyer. I have many books on Wayne Dyer. I have many books on the myth of Mary and, and what she really meant to Jesus Christ. I have all these different types of books that, that talk about the spiritual, but to connect it to ca characters in a thriller that might reach people on a different level was very challenging. And it was a very big risk to spend all this time and on a, a almost language, the way I hear things. And maybe, maybe there's a little bit something quirky about my brain that just hears things differently. I, I haven't really figured that out. I'm sure if I went to a linguist or went to a doctor and said, this is how I hear things, what does this mean? I'm sure I, I have some sort of uh, abnormality because as an artist, I'm just, I'm just wired differently. And that is the hardest thing to uh, maneuver. That is the reason that Dr. Kate Winter works outside of any architecture known as institutions. She has relationships with the FBI and with police but as far as being part of that, uh, her gifts are different. And it is a part of a world that I'm creating. And I'm gonna, I, I think I'm going to do another thriller with her in it. It's hard to really say. My life has changed so much since I moved across the country in, an in, in the last year. It is really hard to decide. There's a lot of things moving in my material world as far as services that I'm going to offer and the work I am doing that broadens beyond the fiction. It is, it's very exciting uh, on one hand because I've grown into it after many years, but the other thing is I can't really announce it because we're in the, in the middle of a freaking global pandemic. And one of the reasons it's hard for me is because I'm not 25. I, I hear about millennials uh, and Gen Z, these, these groups of people really worried about their finances and they've been hit again. I got to tell you, I've been hit several times. And I, I've talked about this before. This is a normal occurrence for the orig original gig workers, which are artists, going back hundreds and hundreds of years, troubadours, whatever you want to call the first one, court jesters, <laughs> paramours, uh, I, don't, I don't know. We're the, we're the original gig workers. So 
I, I, I have to tell you that it is a constant effort to, to be honest to this weird voice in my head when I know that it, it blocks out some people from reading me. Because what I'm, what I'm bringing to you, the possibilities of your life, when you open this, when you open up your, your view of prayer into meditative, let's see, casting a line across the veil and asking questions so it can come to you, when, when you actually realize that you are part of source and you are partnered with source and you are not to genuflect to source is counterproductive no matter how revered our holy books are. It is a real stretch and it's taken me my whole life to try to make sense of this weird journey that I had that only I have and you only have your journey. Uh, nobody else can match it and that's why it's so important to know these things and to make your life into something bigger than your father's daughter, your father's son, or this lineage of people from some place that holds no permanent place in your today world. And I I'm going to keep talking about this because I've come to the conclusion that, that I've, I've been battling about when I, when, when I write my next book, th the way it will sound. And so far in my meditations, this, this rapid fire music that is my voice, it's, it, it just cuts out words and it's more urgent. And I think it's because it took me so long to find my way out of the darkness that was my upbringing and the shadow it left and the shadow I put on it because I had the shadow and I didn't want to admit and figuring out everything. I think it's just, I, w I want to cut to the quick of the actual energy that I'm, I'm putting forth. And it's, it's almost like a Morse code if you read it. I, I do pride myself on being pretty good at dialogue. When I do scenes in my books, I, I, I enact them and really make sure that the words are right and that they flow. There is a music to writing. There's nothing more important than you finding that secret mystic life of your own where you can open up to spirit in a way that is unique to you. And the summer's a really good time because even if you can't be especially with things exploding. Put your mask on as I do. I keep it with me even when I do my race walking. Uh, keep your mask, walk outside, ask these questions. Try to just go with your instincts and just try to do it in your thinking. Uh, try it a couple of times when you're, when you're out doing errands. Try, try to use your instincts more. And keep trying that five minute meditation. Soon it'll be 20. You just have to do it every day. Give yourself the chance. Find your own mystic portal. You've been listening to Sacred to Psychic. I'm Taylor Marsh. You can reach me at www.taylormarsh.com. And remember, 
It's not fate. It's your choices.